The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Last week, I pointed out uh, that this COVID-19 pandemic has created this unprecedented moment when the entire world is basically put on pause. All the normal things like our social gatherings of family and friend dinners and birthday parties and extracurricular activities for our children and um, professional sporting events and church gatherings and uh, even our normal commute to work for most of us has all been suspended, uh, not only for us, but for our entire society. And as a result, uh, we are given what very well may be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be freed from so much of what makes our life feel so busy and unmanageable. And as I said last week, rather than filling this vacuum with all kinds of um, meaningless distractions to basically kill time until we can get back to our normal lives, I invited you to seek out moments of silence and solitude, reflecting on what you want your normal life to actually look like when this crisis is over. What are the choices that you need to make to be able to enter into the deeper life that Jesus invites us to? Last week, I also talked a bit about what life in the suburbs is like and how everything is just basically so planned out and things are so predictable that we, in many ways, have killed any sense of mystery or wonder. We don't worry about the unexpected in the suburbs. And we can plan things out with such a high degree of certainty in our lives. There are really no more um, variables or risks or uncertainty. And out of that, we're given a, a, a sense, an illusion of control. When our marriage struggles, we look for a book or a seminar, or we can get counseling and we can solve that problem. Um, when we worry about the health of our family, we go out and we can purchase organic and, and make sure that our kids are well cared for by the shopping choices we make at the grocery store. But this Coronavirus crisis, I believe, has in a many ways sort of shattered that illusion of control. And I think a lot of us are really struggling to try to understand what all of this is about. And what we've discovered is there are no simple solutions. There are no easy answers here at all. Even just the struggle that we're having through this crisis, I think, is actually a good thing because we're now thrust into a place that feels so unfamiliar, feels so uncertain. And frankly, we, in that uncertainty, feel so small. And I think maybe this is by God's design to bring us 
to this place where we don't have control and when we feel small and need to look to him with greater desperation. The Gospels record Jesus practicing solitude more than just about any other spiritual discipline, maybe second only to prayer. Luke chapter 5, verse 16, it says, But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Right before Jesus would choose his 12 disciples, Luke 6, verse 12, says, One of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. And after he found out that his cousin John the Baptist was killed by Herod, Matthew 14 Verse 13 says, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. In other words, it was Jesus' regular practice to get away from everyone and to be alone with his Father. So many moments recorded in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 14, 22 to 23, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Mark 1, verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. And so the Gospels clearly record a a regular and systematic uh, practice of solitude by Jesus. And I hope that you will take advantage of this unique time that we're going through and to find moments to be alone with God as well. As spiritual disciplines, solitude and silence often go hand in hand. In solitude, we physically get away from others in order to be by ourselves. But in order to be truly alone with God, we also have to unplug from the usual noise that fills our lives and learn how to sit in silence. As I pointed out last week, in that silence, we listen for God's voice, which is in our noise-filled life often drowned out. But if you've ever practiced solitude and silence, you know that God's voice isn't the only thing that you start to hear in that silence. Because in that silence, you are also likely to start hearing the noisiness of your own soul. Uh, you know, in my study, I, had, I used to have this uh, clock hanging on the wall. And the truth is, most of the time in the normal course of a day, uh, you, you cannot hear anything from this clock. Uh, because there's so much noise in the house, whether it's the kids talking or the television playing in the background or music playing. But on Saturdays, when I'm typing out my sermon manuscript, uh, I need it to be completely silent in my study so that I can focus on that sermon. And in that silence, suddenly, I can hear every single tick of that second hand. It's sort of like Edgar, Allen's poll, uh, Edgar Allan Poe's uh, post story, the, the telltale heart, you know, that, that constant thumping that that guy hears. Um, 
And it is so loud. It, get, it became so distracting that I basically had to get rid of that clock and hunt everywhere for one that was silent. And I think the same thing happens when we practice silence as a spiritual discipline. An inner noise starts to emanate from our souls. And in that noise that starts to emerge, strange and unexpected stuff starts to come out that we didn't even realize was there. Because in our normal routines, it's just filled with so much noise and busyness. Dallas Willard, in The Spirit of the Disciplines, says this about silence and solitude. Solitude, like all of the disciplines of the Spirit, carries its risks. In solitude, we confront our own soul with its obscure forces and conflicts that escape our attention when we are interacting with others. Thus, and here he quotes Henry David Thoreau, Solitude is a terrible trial, for it serves to crack open and burst apart the shell of our superficial securities. It opens out to us the unknown abyss that we all carry within us and discloses the fact that these abysses are haunted. Willard goes on, We can only survive solitude if we cling to Christ there. And yet what we find of him in that solitude, enables us to return to society uh, as free persons. Willard points out that there's actually something really distressing about silence because in that silence, all kinds of stuff starts coming out of us. And it's stuff that we don't necessarily want to deal with or even, frankly, acknowledge exists inside of us. It can be pretty distressing to see all the junk that starts coming out from the depths of our hearts when we sit for an extended period of silence. Psychologists have a name for it. They call it self-talk. It is this inner monologue of our uh, voice that is inside our heads that is constantly preaching at us. In the normal noisiness of our routine lives, this inner voice can be really hard to recognize. But in total silence, that voice can be almost deafening. One pastor confessed that whenever he has tried to practice solitude and silence, his mind would eventually always drift to a particular incident where he felt wronged by somebody, mistreated by that person. And before long, he would find himself fantasizing about all kinds of bad things happening to this person. For me, moments of silence have often resulted in me obsessing over my mistakes of the past and becoming so upset with myself when I relive those experiences or freshly feeling once again the shame of that failure of mine. And as distressing as these intruded thoughts may be, they are actually an important part of the journey into solitude and silence. And that's because at the heart of discipleship is learning how to die to ourselves. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 to 25 says this, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. 
For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. The cross is not only a symbol of our salvation because Jesus died on one for our sins. Jesus taught his disciples that it was also a symbol of the kind of dying that all of us need to experience if we are going to be his followers. Paul describes the Christian life as a crucified life. Galatians chapter 2 Verse 20 reads, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Bible tells us that when we are saved, uh, sin's controlling rule over us is broken. We go from a condition of spiritual death to spiritual life and are now able to actually want a relationship with God and want the things that God wants for us. But that doesn't mean that our old nature disappears completely so that we never have to worry about it again. Even though there is an undeniable victory over sin that we experience when we're saved, Paul also acknowledges that that battle with sin continues throughout our Christian life. You know, when we think about what it means to carry our cross, there is a danger of thinking that it only means that we have to deal with the hardships that are imposed on us by a fallen world. But becoming a disciple and living a crucified life is much more than learning just simply how to put up with the garbage that the world will throw at us. In other words, the crucified life is primarily about dying to ourselves so that Christ is living in and through us. You know, Robert Mulholland argues that we can't can't experience the true transformation of a disciple of Jesus unless there is actually a genuine confrontation with our old self that still is actively waging war on our hearts even after we become saved. Mulholland writes, Our cross is not that cantankerous person we have to deal with day by day. Our cross is not the employer we just can't get along with. Our cross is not that neighbor or work colleague who cuts across the grain in every single time of relationship. Nor is our cross the difficulties and infirmities that the flow of life brings to us beyond our control. Our cross is the point of our unlikeness to the image of Christ, where we must die to self in order to be raised by God into wholeness of life in the image of Christ, right there at that point. So the process of being conformed to the image of Christ takes place at the points of our unlikeness to Christ. And the first step is confrontation. 
That's what solitude and silence will do in our lives. When we sit by ourselves in that silence, quite often God will use those opportunities to expose those places in our lives where we are not like Christ. And the noisiness of our soul will begin to emerge and reveal itself to us. And that's often the beginning of the growing and the learning process. Paul describes his own struggle with sin in vivid detail in Romans chapter 7. If we look at verses 14 to 25, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. It's hard to miss the anguish in Paul's words confessing that he feels like these, like these two totally different people inside of him are battling to gain control of his will. And there's been a great debate over the many years of the church history to figure out whether Paul is talking about his condition before he became saved or after he became a Christian. And I believe that Paul is talking about his struggle with sin after becoming a Christian in these verses that we just read. And it's for a couple of reasons. First, in the earlier part of the same chapter in Romans 7, Paul talks about sin in much stronger terms, basically resulting in his spiritual death. And in that part of it, he uses the past tense. But in this part that we just looked at, he is talking now about the ongoing battle against sin that seems much more current, and it's affirmed because he uses the present tense. Another argument for why he is referring to his Christian life is that in verse 22, Paul says, For in my inner being I delight in God's law. Now, if Paul was referring to his pre-Christian state, 
then it would not make sense for him to say that in his heart he loves God's law. Because elsewhere in his letter to the Roman Christians, he makes it very clear that in our lost state, there is nothing in us that desires to love God or his law. In fact, he will say uh, elsewhere in this letter that we are totally hostile to the law of God in our unredeemed state. And so as a result of all of this, I think it's pretty clear that Paul is talking about the struggle that we as Christians will go through, the struggle against sin. And I think the first thing that we can learn from Paul's confession is that the struggle with sin as a Christian is very real and it is intense. Now that he has been made spiritually alive in Christ, there is this earnest desire to obey God's law and to do what pleases him. That desire is real, as well as his genuine hatred of sin. That also is real. And as a believer, he is repulsed by the sin that uh, he sees around him and even in him. And yet, he still finds that he ends up doing the very thing that he hates and doesn't want to do. Sin doesn't have total control over him, but Paul acknowledges that nevertheless, sin is still very much alive in him. I think when we hear Paul's confession like this, we're forced to ask of ourselves, how honest are we with our own sin struggles? You know, many Christian thinkers have described what has been labeled uh, the false self. The false self. And it can be sort of described like this. Very early in our lives, even from early childhood, we develop coping mechanisms to figure out how to gain the things that we most crave in our lives, what we consider to be the most foundational needs of our existence. Things like being loved and accepted or having some sense of power or control in our lives or even a sense that we are valuable, that we are special, that we are worth something. And we basically develop skills. We learn how to do the things we need to do to be acknowledged and rewarded by others while at the same time learning how to avoid those things that earn disapproval from them. And the sad thing is, it doesn't take long before we also learn how to even lie, how to pretend, in order to gain that same approval from others or to avoid their displeasure. And eventually, we begin to play a role in our lives we take on this false identity, what we can call the false self. And what's so dangerous about this false self is that we can become so utterly consumed guarding that false self that after a while, we don't even know who we are anymore. We began by lying to others. But eventually we lie to ourselves so that even we no longer have an accurate view of who we are. We don't see ourselves clearly anymore. All we see is the false image that we've created 
to give us a sense that we are special, that we are good. And I want to say that as Christians, one of the greatest challenges for us to really experiencing the growth that God wants for us and all of the change that God wants for our lives is that we need to first dismantle that false self. We need, by God's enablement, to be able to see ourselves as we truly are. Because that is an unbelievably difficult place to go to in our lives. But until that false self is dismantled, as long as we are working so hard to protect it, to protect that image of ourselves, then we become completely derailed from God's plan for us to experience genuine growth into Christ-likeness that he wants of us. And the problem is that when we encounter those cracks in our armor and when we experience those moments of brokenness, when our true self begins to reveal itself to ourselves or to others, there are some really instinctive defense mechanisms that we can jump to to try to cover it up and to hide. But there's something really important about the pain that we experience when we see what we truly are and the struggle with sin that is very real in us. Uh, David Getz, who I uh, quoted last week, who wrote this book, Death by Suburb, uh, had this experience where um, he, uh, his son got a, a poor grade in school and, and he was just about to head off to uh, a, a business trip. And so right before leaving for the airport, he just really just um, shredded the ego of his son and you know, said, this is unacceptable in our family. And as he was driving to the airport, he was forced to take a, a really hard look at himself and, and realizing what ugliness came out of him that was spewed on his, his son. And Getz writes this, the struggle of the self to disentangle itself from illusion is the real journey within. The imperfect life is the only life worth living. It is, in fact, the only life that anyone really lives. When you're outraged at yourself, disgusted at your behavior, you must let it hurt. The hurting is part of the dying. The frustration I have with myself for what I did shows how much self-love I have. I'm shocked at my behavior. That's the real problem, the outrage at what I said. I think I'm more righteous than that. You're not. You're self-righteous, and that's your big problem. So let it hurt. You know that you've made some progress when you stop being shocked at your stupidity. And so where are you on this journey of discovering your own struggle with sin? What degree of honesty do you have? as you face your sin. Another thing, though, that I think is so important as we look at Romans 7 and the struggle that Paul confesses of his own sin 
is that he realized that his primary identity is not defined by his brokenness and his sin. It's the new creation that he has become, the new identity that Christ has given him as an act of grace. That's why in Romans chapter 7, verse 22, Paul can say, For in my inner being I delight in God's law. What he's saying is, in, you know, as he's saying, Who am I, these two people that I see that are just battling it out for my soul, saying, Who really am I in my essence? What is the real me, my true self? And in asking that question, what Paul says, In my innermost being, that very core of who I am at the very center of my identity is a person who delights in God's law, a person who is saved by God's grace. And that's why in verse 25, Paul can celebrate and say, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Unless we understand our true identity in Christ, unless we understand that our primary identity is not our sinfulness, there is no way we will have the courage to face that sin that we struggle with. But when we realize that we are saved by grace and that we are loved by God in spite of all of the struggle that is going on inside us, it's only when we truly grasp that and believe that that we can really have the courage to face the battle with sin that is going on within us. My true self is that I am a child of God, loved by Him, regardless of my performance. You know, anyone who doesn't see their own sin struggle may be fooled into thinking, well, you know, it just shows how spiritually mature I am because I just don't really have those problems in my life anymore. And there's no doubt about it that as Christians, part of the um, evidence of progress is that we are overcoming certain sins that we may have struggled with in earlier years. But the Bible would also argue at the same time that the more mature we become, the more sensitive we become to the sin in our hearts. And therefore, the more honestly we can deal with that sin. Even as we are making progress and growing, we become more and more aware of other sins. And we need to get to that place of honesty with our struggle so that we can see how absolutely desperate our need is for God's help in this battle. Because the truth is, if we only think we sin a little then we are very likely to think also that we can solve that problem through our own efforts. But Paul didn't think that. Instead, Paul lets the full force of his inability to do so just hit him. And that's why in verse 24 he says, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from the body that is subject to death? I don't know. Have you come to that place in your own spiritual journey? When you've become so broken by what you see when you look inside, that what you realize is there are no band-aid solutions here. There are no minor tweaks that I can make and just little habits that I can just overcome, but it's looking fully at the sin that is in your heart and saying, oh, wretched person that I am. 
This is not a minor battle with sin. But I see that basically I'm feeling at times like I'm being torn in two from the very insides of ending up doing the very things that I hate. And outwardly, I project this false image, this false self to other people. But Lord, you know these hidden places in my heart. And you know how often I am prone to do the very things that I hate. There is something in me that desires to do the good. And yet so often in my life, I feel powerless to do that good. Instead, I choose that darker path. Those things, those very things that I hate in me. Because it's only when we really come to that place of honest confession that we also can become that, more, that much more desperate to seek the help of God in overcoming the struggles that we have. Because it is only by God's grace, it is only with His help, His empowerment, His enablement that we can really overcome the struggle against sin in our lives. You know, um, this past uh, Good Friday service, um, I want to share about something that's a bit embarrassing to me, you know. Uh, I was just, we were, we, we as a staff, I think, were getting really stressed out about the service because we had never attempted anything like this on Zoom. And, you know, we knew it was going to go live. And so if you're doing it live, there can't be any mistakes. Everything has to go perfectly. And so we actually did a dry run earlier that day, and it, it was kind of messy, and it didn't go that well. And so we actually did a second dry run um, right before the service started. And I didn't actually come out of that even second rehearsal feeling that great about it. And then the countdown started, and we got started into the service itself. And I was doing the first two movements in the service. And just as the service got kicked off and Pastor Eugene was inviting everyone to greet one another, um, just something went haywire on Betty's computer. Uh, and she was running the keynote slides for me uh, for the whole service. And so she was kind of desperately waving to me, frantically asking for my help. And I just was so flustered, and I rushed over there, and I thought that my mic was muted, <laughs> but it wasn't. It's one of these hot mic moments, and it just I'm just sitting here dealing with all the stresses, and in my mind, I'm thinking, like, why can't you deal with your own problems, thinking that to my wife? And why is it that every time you have a problem, it becomes my problem? And why do I have to help you when I've got all this stuff to worry about? And the truth is, you know, I started being pretty short with her, and my tone wasn't really blessing. Um, and I think uh, the other staff overheard it. And they began to panic, and every one of them started madly trying to find my screen so that they could mute me. And, you know, after the service was done and we pushed it out, um, you know, I think Peter, in his graciousness as he was post-editing that footage, um, muted those sections when you could actually hear me kind of yelling at Betty, you know. And, uh, um, you know, I thank him for doing that. <laughs> Uh, and I guess I'm suspecting that many of you will now go to the archives and try to play that footage to actually see how it turned out. Um, but, you know, it just, when I, that, that whole situation just really stuck with me for days. And it's even something that I'm thinking about right now. And what's weird about it is 
actually that um, I, I actually thought that for between Betty and I, we were not actually all that embarrassed or distressed about the way that that interaction played out. But you could clearly tell that the staff was really distressed over it. And that actually made me think, um, what are the habits and the patterns that I have established with her in the way that at times I talk with her in private when no one else is looking that has in some ways become so normalized in our relationship that it actually doesn't even feel that weird to us. And yet, suddenly when there's a hot mic and other people can hear that private or what should have been a private conversation, they get a little alarmed. They get shocked. And it really caused me to think about what is this sort of public image that I portray to people and who am I in private when others are not looking? And I think it's, it's just those are the kind of places I just don't even want to go to. These are such uncomfortable places. I would much rather think of myself as the false self, as the carefully curated image of myself that I show to the public. But those moments of solitude and silence are the times when God wants to expose the true self, who I really am. And that can be incredibly hard to acknowledge or to look at. But when I truly understand that I am a child of God, saved by His grace, a child of mercy, then I don't have to be afraid of confronting those darker parts of me. And it's not until I have the courage to do so that God can really do His deepest work in my life of transforming me and forgiving me and healing me of those places that I confess and that I repent of. And so that's what I want to invite you to in this week as you spend some time in solitude and silence before God. I hope that through that time you will be more aware of your false self. What are the parts of you that maybe you don't even acknowledge or see? And how might God want to transform those sides of you? I pray that in that silence you would have the courage to be able to say like Paul, oh, wretched man that I am. And in that sense of absolute powerlessness over it, you would turn to Christ who alone has the power to heal you of that sin and to help you to overcome and find victory in Christ. Maybe just one practical word I can give you for that is this. As you reflect on your false self, when do you become the most touchy, uh, sensitive, and defensive? In other words, what are those parts that you don't want anyone to talk about when you think about your character, who you are inside? Because very likely, you feel that way because it's starting to move toward your false self and start to touch some things that you don't want touched. 
And then the other thing that I can ask you is this, as you explore your own false self. What are your compulsions that reveal your excessive attachments in your life? The things that you feel like you need so desperately to give you a sense that you're special, that you're important, that you're worthwhile or valuable. Maybe they're becoming obsessions or addictions. Would you just spend some time reflecting on those two things as a, maybe a doorway into trying to understand where am I living out of a, a false image that God wants to deconstruct in order to bring me to those healthier places of transparency and honesty with my sin so that he can do that deepest work in my life. Let's pray. Father, these are such difficult places for us to go to in our hearts. They are not easy things for us to confess. All of us, we confess, work so hard to craft an image of ourselves in front of the eyes of others, a false self. And yet we also acknowledge that we begin to believe our own lies. And after a while, it's hard for us to even know what truth is in the midst of all of the different ways that we are so deceptive about what is really going on inside of our hearts. And so we pray that as we enter into moments of silence and solitude, that you would meet us there in that silence. And as the noisiness of our souls begin to expose itself, we pray that the gospel would give us the courage to face that truth and to be able to lay it before you so that through your power we can experience real healing from that brokenness. I pray, Father God, that you would help us to know that even as we become more and more sensitive to the areas of sin in our life, that, your, that our knowledge of your grace would also grow, to know that we are cared by you and loved by you, regardless of all of our failings, all of our weakness, all of our sin. And out of that confidence, may we have the courage to approach your throne of grace daily and receive your mercy there. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now receive the benediction. May God, your shepherd, lead you to green pastures and still waters, refreshing your soul. May your identity as his child always be secure. And in that security, may you have the courage to face your true self with all of its struggles and contradictions. And in that honesty with your sin struggle, may the cross always be a reminder that you are loved and accepted by God, not because of what you can achieve, but by his mercy 